I want to turn to Second uh, Samuel, and we're going to read in chapter 3 a single verse that I have read many, many times. I try to read the Bible through four times a year, and uh, I hope you're on a Bible reading plan, and you're taking the term, the, uh, the time rather, to get as much of the Word of God as you can. Uh, every time I've read this verse, every time, without exception, I stop. Because it grips me, it communicates to me, it says something to me. And I want to read it. Now there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. This is a discussion or an observation the scripture makes about the transition that occurred from the administration and kingship of Saul to that of David when David became king because Saul began to lose his anointing and doors for him began to close, but they began to open for David. And I want to speak this morning from this subject, Momentum Thieves, Recovering Stolen Momentum. Father, I ask you to please speak to us today and let your word resonate in our hearts. God, let it come alive. Let our very souls vibrate to the frequency of your word as it speaks its message to each of us in that unique manner that you have to tailor make a word to the individual, even though it's spoken to a congregation. Wherever people may be listening to this word today, minister to them, I ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Shout it out loud. Amen. Momentum thieves. Momentum thieves. And then how to recover stolen momentum. You see, people often don't understand the importance of momentum. We enjoy momentum. We, we enjoy the way it makes us feel. It makes everything so much easier. We have a good time when momentum is going our way. There are many expressions in society that have been coined to demonstrate that. Like, um, for example, the wind in your sails. Or how about the famous song, the wind beneath my wings. There have been many, many expressions that have worked their way into our vernacular and our speech that express the fact that momentum going for you is a wonderful thing to have and enjoy. Having the wind at your back is another one. But not only do we enjoy momentum, it is also vitally important to us that we experience momentum. In this series, We have been talking about how you can experience momentum in your life if you're not experiencing it. Momentum is defined by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary as the impetus or driving force that is gained by the development of a process or course of events. It is the strength or force gained by motion. It is moving in the right direction and the acceleration that is gained or the force that you experience as you move forward. 
If a car is sitting still and you bump it, no big deal. If it's rolling forward at five miles an hour and you get bumped, that'd do a lot of damage. If it's moving 70, you're in serious trouble. Ask me. I've been hit eight times by people who rear-ended me. Eight times in this city in 34 years. And on several of those occasions, four of them at least, I was sitting completely still. And one time I was hit by someone doing 75 miles an hour as I was sitting still. Back into the car was so crumpled it didn't even exist anymore. Boy, momentum is a powerful thing. And the scripture tells us that the house of David became stronger and stronger while the house of Saul got weaker and weaker. The Latin word for momentum is a word that signifies movement. Now, to make this real to you, how many of you have ever ridden a roller coaster? Could I see your hand? You're in a roller coaster. How many of you enjoyed riding roller coasters? Anybody here? I loved it. When we traveled for all those years in evangelism and in ministry, uh, whenever we got near a theme park, we'd go out of our way to attend one. And I always told the kids, I, I, you know, I want you guys to have a good time. But what they didn't know that they probably have figured out by now is I wanted to ride the thing more than they did. I love roller coasters. Amen. And have you ever noticed what happens? They're so much fun. But when you finally get settled in the seat, the car of the roller coaster that you are sitting in, and they clamp that bar down over your your legs or your waist, and they pull out of the gate. Have you noticed that that first steep incline, that car can't make it up the incline by itself? It struggles to get to the top and there's a mechanism even embedded in the track that engages with gears and pulls those cars up that steep incline. It has to do that because those cars are heavy and not to mention the weight of all of the people who are riding in those cars. But once you crest the top or the apex of that first hill, and they plunge down the other side of the hill, gravity takes over. And man, that's when the fun begins. Everybody throws their hands up in the air, and and you begin to shout like you don't care, and you have a great time. And it whips you through unexpected turns and curves and and you find yourself racing down into valleys and then up other hills and the momentum you gain from that first steep climb and the hill as you come over the top of that hill is enough to carry you through all of those unexpected curves and all those valleys and all of those other hills. In life, you find the same thing. You're going to go through some unexpected curves in life. You're going to be thrown over to the side of the car by a sudden shift of direction that you were not anticipating. You're going to find yourself plunging into valleys that you did not know were there. You're going to find yourself trying to get over hills that you didn't expect. I think of this whole pandemic, there's not a person out there that expected this to happen. Not a scientist, not a single one knew this was coming. And within two weeks, our entire world was affected. 
The economies of the world shut down, nations halted. It was just a reality. We had to deal with something that we didn't even know was going to affect us. Talk about a sudden shift. Some of us are still addressing matters from that incident alone. And life is that way. You get hit with all kind of things. A sickness you were not expecting. A debt. Uh, a job that plays out that you expected to retire from. A relationship that begins to develop problems that you were not looking uh, to have to deal with. And, and you know what carries you through so many of those things? It's the momentum that you've already built up in God and his help. Whenever you have momentum going your way, it helps you overcome unexpected obstacles. It helps you make it through valleys that you didn't know were coming or in your path. And it helps you to be able to get through sharp curves in life that you were not expecting to have to negotiate. We love momentum, don't we? We love momentum. We love it whenever the devil shows up and we just mow right over the top of him and flatten him to the ground. We love it when the enemy stands up and says, you're going to get stopped right there. And we leave him like Wiley Coyote back there in the dust. You know what I'm talking about? And we absolutely love that. And every one of us need momentum in our lives. We need it spiritually. A church needs momentum. We need momentum in our worship. We need momentum in the preaching. We, we need momentum in the services. We need momentum in our service to the community. Momentum, you see, can help carry people into the presence of God. The way it works is like this. By this church serving the community, we touch needs out there. There are probably some of you here today that are here as a result of some of the programs that we have had that have ministered to the broken in our community like Hurricane Harvey and, and other things and, and the giveaways and the food and, and everything that we are constantly involved in. We don't do that because, because we're trying to say look how good we are. We're doing that because we want to touch you for God and we love you and, and we want to minister to you and you know what happens after a while you know you begin to realize that maybe maybe there's somebody down at that church that's interested in my future or maybe God is interested in my future and you begin to realize God's not your enemy he's your friend and if a church has momentum and you come in where there is worship and the anointing of God is there miracles can happen that you were not expecting to have happen in your life Amen. When people gather together to worship, momentum is the result. When people pray together, it creates momentum. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name. Where two or three agree is touching anything. And when you get in the presence of spiritual momentum, it rubs off on you. Something can touch your life and you might not even know that you have been changed until you walk out of here, get in your car Monday morning and drive to work and you begin to experience the results of the momentum that happened when you were in the presence of God Almighty on Sunday. 
That's right. Amen. Anything can happen. We have had miracles happen because people get in the presence of God. You see, whenever you come into the presence of the Lord, the Bible said in Psalms 100, you enter his gates with thanksgiving. You see, the tabernacle had three components to it. Outside, of course, there were the mass of the people of God. Not everybody made it inside the gates. But if you enter the gates, you had to come in entering with thanksgiving. Once you got inside the gates, there was a courtyard. And then you would not only enter his gates with thanksgiving, but into his courts, see, with praise. Then be thankful unto him. That's the next dimension because there was a tent. And that, that tent was divided into two components. And when you got into that second component, there was yet another. And that was the one behind the veil. And that's where the Shekinah presence of God was. And if you could get back there, it would change your life just by being there. I'm talking to somebody that needs to know that when you come together to worship, that there is a profound impact that can occur in your life. I want to be a part of a church that that worships. Can I hear somebody say amen? I want to be a part of a church that prays. I want to be a part of a church that, that fasts. I want to be a part of a church that loves the word of God because spiritual momentum can change lives. We've had cancer healed. Seriously speaking, fourth stage cancer has been healed just by being in the presence of God here. We've had it happen a number of times. And the scripture talks about momentum. You see, you can, you can have momentum in your ministry. You can have momentum in your career. The young man we're bringing here Wednesday night has enormous momentum across the world right now. Jason Nelson does as well. I want you to experience that because I know that whenever you have momentum in your marriage, those unexpected turns and heels and obstacles and valleys are so much easier to negotiate. The scripture tells us the house of David became stronger and stronger. While the house of Saul got weaker and weaker. What that means is, is that David began to experience an increase and an acceleration in momentum. But Saul, who started out on fire, man, and red hot, he began to experience a decline in momentum. So much so that momentum reversed and went the wrong way. David got so much momentum going his way that it spilled over on his family. God knows I want my family to experience the momentum that I am first enjoying in God. I want it to flow over on my son and my daughter-in-law and their kids and and my great-grandkids. And I want it to flow over on my daughter and and her husband and and their children. And there have been challenges that we have watched go through, uh, our kids go through and still are going through. But but I, I want them to experience positive momentum. I want them to be able to experience the blessings of God. And I don't just want to get in touch with God for me. I want to get in touch with God because I know that it's going to affect everything around me. And and if I get my cup full enough, David said it spills over. My cup overflows. Amen. And I want my, my family to experience that. I want the church to experience it. 
On the other hand, Saul had so much negative momentum going his way that it spilled over into the lives of his family members. And he lost momentum and so did his his family, his kids and his grandkids. Momentum began to carry them the wrong direction. It's like that, that, that roller coaster trying to climb that hill and it can't make it. And it just starts sliding backward. You see, momentum can go for or against you. And whether it goes for you or against you is something that you can have something to do with or you can address in your own life. Not only, as I said, did Saul experience momentum going the wrong direction, but he couldn't stop it. He didn't know how. It all started for Saul way back there when he got too big for his position. He started out as a man with great humility. They went to anoint him and he was hiding among the stuff. And then he got to where he thought, you know, I'm pretty smart. I'm pretty good. I I got this thing all figured out. And instead of giving God the glory, he didn't need God anymore. I've watched people where that's happened, unfortunately, in the course of their life. They used to have such humility. And then they got to thinking they knew so much. And we're all intelligent, and I honor you for your intelligence. We've got doctors and attorneys, and, and, and I'm talking about people that, with doctorates in, in education. We've got, we got educated folk here today, and I appreciate that so much, and whatever level of your education. But I want to tell you something. There's no substitute for spiritual momentum in your life. Amen. Amen. And finally... God had enough with Saul because he he just, he got to where he didn't respect protocol and didn't realize the need for having a spiritual voice in his life. And so he set himself up to offer his own sacrifice. You remember that? I think it's 1 Samuel 15. Boy, did it go downhill fast from there. The Philistines gathered to fight against him and they brought with them their champion. On the other hand... During the same time, there was a guy out on the fields, in the fields, on the hillsides with his sheep. And he was worshiping and writing songs for God. He was a passionate lover of God. His name was David. Now, David, let me tell you, his beginning wasn't so great. David, it is believed by scholars, could have been an illegitimate son to Jesse. Because when Samuel was sent by God to find and pick a successor and to anoint a new king for Israel, God sent him to the house of Jesse and said, go anoint one of Jesse's sons. And so he showed up at Jesse's house. Can you imagine the surprise? And Samuel says, go get your boys and bring them. And he brings all of them except David and leaves him out in the field taking care of the sheep. And so all these fine looking young men stand before Samuel and Samuel says, boy, surely the anointed of the Lord is standing in front of me because they were so good looking and handsome and the glow of God on them. And, and you know what? He started to, to get confident that one of these is, is the one God's going to anoint. And God said, wait, 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 hey, wait a minute, Samuel, you're looking at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. Amen. And he said, I'm not going to anoint a single one of these. And so Samuel turns to Jesse in confusion and says, don't you have another boy? I know what God told me. He told me to come here and anoint one of your sons. And you said, these are your sons. And Jesse's like, "Uh, uh, 
Uh, I got one out there taking care of the sheep. And Jewish scholars speculate that David was actually an illegitimate son of Jesse. That's not the greatest beginning in the world. And I want to tell you what. It's not where you start. It's where momentum carries you that counts. Some people spend all of their lives talking about the marks against them and the obstacles they've got to overcome when they ought to be talking about the God that can bring you through every one of them. Can I hear somebody in the building shout hallelujah? And during this process, when David has been anointed, guess who shows up? The Philistines, and they come to fight Saul. And three of David's brothers get conscripted into the army, and they're put out there. And Jesse sends some food from back home. Back in that day, the army didn't feed you. You had to bring your own food, I guess. And he sent a gift to the captain of his sons. You know, what you do is if you don't want your sons put in harm's way, you, you give a gift to their, their officer and he'll put them in a place where maybe the conflict is not as severe. And so Jesse sends food to his sons and he sends a gift to the officer and David carries it. And when he shows up, there is this freak of nature that is standing out there on the battlefield who is nine and one half feet tall. Would the NBA ever love to get their hands on him? I mean, they'd probably have to redo the the court rules because he'd look down, I guess, on, on the goal rim at night. I don't know how tall it is, but he, he's big enough. Trust me, he wouldn't have any trouble dunking. Amen. Flat footed at that. And man, this guy's parading around and David shows up and, and Goliath, this freak of nature has been trained from the time he's that big to fight. He's been taught the skills of war in medicine. They talk about having a double growth gene. We had a young man here one time that was from South Africa that came to play and attended church. And he had a double growth gene. And man, he shot up when he was that big. Man, he, he just took off. And, and by the time he was eight years old or nine years old, he was as tall as the average man. I mean, that guy just shot up. And you know, you can teach a guy to play basketball, but you can't teach him to be nine and a half feet tall. You know what I mean? And you can teach a guy to fight, but you can't teach him to be that massive monster that was named Goliath. And Goliath shows up and Israel is petrified into fear. They're cowering. Saul is hiding because Saul's the tallest man in Israel. And by rights, he ought to be the one to go out there and fight Goliath. And that little boy, 16 or 17 years old named David shows up and he says, who is that uncircumcised Philistine that dares challenge my God? And his brothers rebuke him and said, you're just being naughty. You came here to see the battle. That's all you came to do. But in in the meanwhile, Saul is so desperate that he hears what this young lad has been saying. One of his soldiers tells him, and he brings that boy in and said, well, you willing to fight him? Now think about the, what that means. A 16 or 17 year old boy and grown men won't get out of their tents. And, and David said, I sure will. I'll fight him. 
Amen. And he walked out there and you know the story. That's an amazing story from the scripture. Goliath says, you send that boy out here. He said, well, and he starts threatening all the things he's going to do. And David says, you come against me with sword and spear, but I come against you in the name of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Before he did, though, I want to show you that momentum was a part of David's life. Because when Saul began to question him, this is what David said in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel verse 36. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. Not a lion, not a bear, both lion and bear. Indicating that it probably was more than one of each. Because when you were out there as a shepherd, you had to defend the flock. And David was by this time, he had momentum. He had killed a lion. He graduated from the lion to the bear. And now he's not afraid of the giant. You see, what you've been through prepares you for what you're about to do. Amen. I'm talking to somebody. You think that you have wasted years. You haven't. God's been in the process of preparing you for what is about to happen in your life. Amen. I face the lion, I face the bear, or lions and bears, it seems to indicate. And I'm not afraid of this uncircumcised Philistine. He's going to be like one of them. Amen. And so David goes out there and faces and kills Goliath. Now he's got greater momentum. And so he has killed a lion and a bear. He's been anointed. And now he's killed Goliath. He becomes anointed over the the tribe of Judah. When Judah breaks away from the other 12 of the other tribes. Judah was one of the 12. It broke away. David became their king. And finally, years later, David becomes, seven years later, he becomes the king of the united tribes of Israel, all 12. So from lion to bear, to being anointed to Goliath, to being anointed, to being anointed king over all of Israel. Man, the guy's on a roll. And Saul's house is going into the other direction. He's losing momentum. His sons that should have been king are now experiencing the loss of momentum caused by the actions of their father. I wish that I could get this point across. Because you just wishing well for your kids and telling them, don't do what I do. Do what the scripture says is not impacting your family the way you think that it is. You have to take a stand for righteousness and create momentum that will spill out over onto your descendants and those around you. Can somebody in the building say amen? You see, here's what will happen. David was a nobody, but momentum will make you do things that will shock your family. Momentum will cause you to achieve things that will cause your friends' jaws to drop open. Do you hear what I'm saying? Momentum will cause you to climb to places that will make your enemies jealous of you. I'm talking to somebody that God wants to elevate your life. And give you momentum. 
Amen. Momentum will make everybody around you be surprised. They'll look at you and say, what? Where did that come from? How did you do that? Somebody has said behind every successful man, there's a good woman and a surprise mother-in-law. Amen. Momentum will make you surprise your mother-in-law. Momentum will stun your wife. Hello, somebody. Momentum will shock your neighbors. Momentum will cause you to stun your mom and dad. Momentum will make your brothers and sisters look at you in a new light. I need somebody to turn to their neighbor right now. You can't high five each other and say, you can get jealous if you want to, but I'm going to get some momentum going on in my life. David was on a roll and I'm just about done. He experienced win after win after win after win up until 2 Samuel chapter 11. I told you I'm going to preach today about momentum thieves and recovering stolen momentum. It is in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel that suddenly everything changed and David lost his momentum. You would have think, you would think that David would have learned something from his experience with Saul. You know what happened in chapter 11? A woman named Bathsheba. And David sinned and the momentum he had ground to a halt. Why? Because sin will steal your momentum. I've been working on this sermon now for, for months and I prayed, Oh God, help me to get this point across because people believe that sin is fun. It's attractive and it's alluring. They, they, they don't see through it because what's ultimately going on as the enemy plans to rob you of the momentum that he sees in your life. He wants you to crash and burn like Saul did. Hello, somebody. Amen. And what many people don't realize is that just like God can help you create momentum, you can actually end up being responsible for stealing your own momentum by making the wrong decisions and choices in life. Imagine. Here you are doing your very best to get forward and you're enjoying the favor of God and then you put the handbrake on and everything slows down and what used to be easy becomes hard. And you don't realize it's because you got the handbrake on in your own life. And that's why you're going through what you're going through in your finances or your ministry. That's why you're going through what you're going through in your family. And you see the opposition, that heel that you weren't expecting, that sharp curve that has thrown you to the side where you're holding on for dear life and you're screaming not because you're having fun, but out of sheer terror. That curve, that valley that you plunged into that you didn't know was there, it was because you made some decisions that need to be corrected. David's momentum was halted because of sin. Israel is another example of momentum being stolen by sin. There's not a person here today, I would imagine, that is not aware that Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness on a journey that should have only taken them a maximum of three weeks. Did you just get that? 
Did you just let that register? You see, from Cairo, Egypt to Jerusalem, Israel is only 312 miles. It's not thousands of miles. It's only 312. As a pastor, I love you and I got to be the one to tell you these things. You know, if they had walked at the pace of the smallest child only six days a week, they could have gotten there easily within three weeks. It wouldn't have taken them that long. I could have walked, walked backward for 312 miles and gotten there in under three weeks. I could have hopped on one foot. You could have too. You cannot find a better example in scripture of what not to do than the nation of Israel in the wilderness. They lost their momentum. And did they have momentum when they got in the wilderness? Oh boy, you better know it. I mean, they didn't until Moses showed up in Egypt, but Moses shows up and tells Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord, let my people go. And Pharaoh in his arrogance and haughtiness says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? (laughs) Well, 10 plagues later, he had figured out the answer to that question. He learned very quick who the Lord was. When the waters of the Red Sea parted, it dawned on him. I'm dealing with a force greater than I am. He quickly discovered why he should have let the nation of Israel go at the instruction of God Almighty. You see, and here's the point most people misapply. This whole study of Israel going through the wilderness, we've developed a theology, and I've read it in, in theological books so many times. We've, we've, we sing songs about it. I've heard sermons about it. And the theology is incorrect because what we do is we talk about our journey in salvation to death being that we have to cross through the wilderness as though our life here in its entirety is to be spent in the wilderness. That was not at all what God was saying. He wanted them there in three weeks to be able to enjoy the promised land. We get stuck in the wilderness because of our choices, not God's. Oh, I wish I could hear somebody say hallelujah. You see, the reality is when you get saved, Paul said you're made, Ephesians 2, to sit with him in heavenly places right now. Not just in heaven and, you know, the sweet by and by when you die. No, sir, you can, you can enjoy the benefits of the promised land right now. Then you go to heaven. After all this life is over. But you know what? As an accommodation of the wrong choices that we're so prone to make as human beings. We've actually developed a theology to make us feel better. Oh, I'm just out here in the wilderness. And that wilderness is because of decisions we made. We should have been in the promised land years ago. Not in that promised land. In this promised land. That is, we ought to be in enjoying God's divine favor. Scripture is so multidimensional and multifaceted in depth and meaning that we've overlooked this. 
And so the story of Israel being set free from slavery and bondage in Egypt is actually the story of our own conversion and deliverance that we might fulfill the purpose of God, which was the promised land. And yeah, you can go through some challenges to get there, but you're supposed to get so much of the word. That's the manna that you pick up and eat every day. You know what I'm talking about? Until you get so full of the word of God and so full of the manna that you're living from day to day in God's divine favor and with God's health. It's sin and disobedience that caused you to get stalled in the wilderness. And if Israel as a nation illustrates the journey of the church in its entirety or in its greatness as a congregation or multitude of people that come from around the world, if we illustrate what it's like to go through the wilderness to our destiny because the promised land is your destiny. Won't you turn to somebody and say, I'm going to fix something right now. Would you do that? Tell them, I'm going to fix something right now. The promised land is your destiny. Tell them that. It's your destiny here. It's not when you die. Stop thinking that stuff that that it's when I die, I'm going to get my promised land. No, your promised land is your destiny. God made you to have a destiny. Somebody ought to give God a shout of praise right now. But if Israel illustrates this truth about God's church at large, Achan illustrates this truth. At the micro level at which we live as individuals. He was on his way to the promised land. He saw the waters of the Red Sea part. Man, I'm telling you, he lived on manna, angels food. And then they come to the Jordan River. Oh, this is astonishing. It parts. They go to Jericho and the walls fall supernaturally. I'm talking to somebody. The walls used to fall on their own. And now then you're struggling trying to push them over and wondering why miracles are not a part of your life. Why did everything get hard? You got the handbrake on. You need to let the handbrake go. There's something going on you got to let go of. Hello, somebody. Can I hear in the house today a word of affirmation saying, Pastor, preach to me. Can you say it? And they defeated Jericho. The walls fell flat supernaturally. And man, Achan was on a roll. And then they came to a no-name town called Ai. And got stalled at Ai. And what Achan did affected everybody around him. Sin will cause you to lose momentum. And I've got good news for you because I'm not leaving you out there without hope. The message of this Bible is that Christ came to help you recover the momentum you lost. You don't have to be stalled any longer. I need somebody to lift their hands and say, I don't have to be stalled any longer. Would you do that? You don't. Your finances can pick up momentum. Do you hear me? God can bless your life. Your family can have momentum. Your marriage can have momentum. Your kids can have momentum. Your business can have momentum. Your ministry can have momentum. You say, Pastor, is there hope? 
oh yeah, yeah. You see, because, you, let, me, let me just say it like this. How do you recover momentum that has been stolen? The first thing you do is get rid of the momentum thieves in your life. Cut them out. Cut them out. The Bible says it like this. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Cut them out. If they're stealing your momentum, they're not your friend. I don't care how much they present themselves as being your friend. You might have some folk you've got to cut out of your life. Oh, I'm preaching to somebody right now. Hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back, no. You're stealing my momentum, and I can't let you do that. I'm not Ray Charles, but I'd sure sing it if I could. Amen. Hit the road, Jack. You got to tell momentum thieves, I can't tolerate you. I I know they've worked their way into your life, into your business, into your heart, into your social circle. But you got to let them go and say, my momentum matters more than these things that are stealing my momentum matter to me. I got to get rid of this. You see... Momentum thieves can be sin, but it can also be the wrong people. It can be disobedience. It can be condemnation and shame. The enemy may be beating you up over something you did years ago. I won't set you free from that. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Somebody ought to shout and say, I'm free. I'm free. Come on, shout it out. I'm free from that devil. You're a liar. I'm free. Yes, I'm messed up, but the blood of Jesus cleanses me of all sin and unrighteousness. I'm not going to live in shame anymore. Shame on you, devil. I done figured out your game. Ha ha, I see you hiding in the middle of all of that. You think I don't see you? See you? Where's Waldo? Where's the devil? He's in condemnation. That's where he's at. And once you, oh my God. Did you ever, did you ever look at one of those where's Waldo things? Once you find him, you can't miss him from that time forward. You look at that picture, he's going to jump out at you every time. Got you, devil. I see you. Got you, devil. I see you. Amen. Number two, not only get rid of the momentum thieves in your life, get in the word of God again. Psalms 119.59, the psalmist said, I thought about my ways and I turned my feet to your testimonies. Think about your ways. Think. And then you know what you do? The psalmist said, turn. Turn your feet toward God's testimonies. You walk in this way, turn your feet toward the testimonies of God. That implies to me or suggests to me 
that you're not going to get there over overnight. You know, you don't just, okay, I'm going this wrong way and then boom, just like that. I'm way over here. No, you turn your feet and you start moving in the right direction. It's the little bitty steps that add up to great distance. It's that clickety clack as you climb that first hill of that roller coaster track until you crest the top. And some of you could really be near a breakthrough right now. Amen. And the third thing you do, and I'm done, go back to where you lost your momentum. What I mean by that, God told the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation to do their first works over again. And so if you left your momentum over here, you know what you do? You come over here where you left it. What I mean, I'm not talking about geography when I say over here. I'm talking about action. I'm talking about heart. I'm talking about spirit. I'm talking about attitude. Can I hear somebody in the building say, I understand what you mean, pastor. I understand. Do your first works over again. Get up in the morning. Read the word once more. Hallelujah. Be faithful in the house of God. Do you know why I give God his substance? I give God his substance because I want momentum in my finances. You think I'm going to live without giving my tithe? You are wrong, baby, wrong. Uh Uh-uh, I'm not going around living the rest of my life trying to get something and squeeze a buck and all of that and needing help. I'm not living there. I'm going to be faithful to God because when I do that, I get momentum in my life and God opens the windows of heaven over my life. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Can somebody in the building shout hallelujah? Amen. Would you stand with me? And I want to say thank you because speaking of that last point, you know, we've been through COVID for a whole year. Not once have I come to ask you for a special offering. I'm going to do it right now. So don't get scared. <laughs> Amen. You've just been faithful and just kept right on honoring God. And I, I want to say thank you so much for that. We moved into a new building. We got a mortgage. You know, you, you've just kept right on giving like COVID wasn't even out there. And I want to honor you because of your faithfulness. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. I preach a number of conferences every year. And I told Brenda, and here I am. You're going to think I'm bragging about myself, but I'm not. I really am not. I just want to show you I know where my favor's at. My blessing is at. And I preach a lot of conferences, and last year I've had to do them all by Zoom. But, but every time I get an offering, I told Brenda that goes to the church now and to missions. I used to give everything I got and have for over 30 years to, to missions. And I still give to missions an extraordinary amount. But I wanted to pay a church note a year just all by myself. Amen. And I'm not bragging on me. Because I live on the salary that you folk give me. You're so kind. I mean, I've learned that if I can keep the windows of heaven open, you're not even my source. God is my source. Amen. Amen. And do you know God has blessed me beyond measure? You say, why are you telling me that? It's not so you can look up to me. Please don't. You can misapply everything I just said. 
I just told you that because I want you to know there's a principle that I've learned to live my life by. I want to live my life by the principle of his momentum. I want his favor. And so I'm talking to somebody that needs to go back to where they left the favor of God. And you need to do your first works over again. And you need to do what the psalmist said. And you need to give thought to your ways and turn your feet toward the statutes and testimonies of the Lord. 